Thank you so much for coming. Uh, my name is Stephen Kolobom. I'm with Great Hearts Academies. This is my 11th year and currently headmaster at a, a one of the K-5 academies. And today uh, our guest will be uh, Dr. Owen Anderson. As you can see, a, br a brief change of uh, media here as he's going to be zooming in today. Um, but a little bit about him. He's uh, was the William E. Simon Research Fellow in the James Madison Program at Princeton University. Uh, and, had, and a visiting scholar at Princeton Seminary uh, from 2013 to 14. Uh, Dr. Anderson's main areas of research are natural theology, natural law, and religion in the modern age. He has served as faculty senate president and program lead, uh, and Owen has published seven books, including The Declaration of Independence in God, uh, The Natural Moral Law with Cambridge University Press, and his most recent book is The Cambridge Companion to the First Amendment and Religious Liberty. Uh, he regularly teaches courses in philosophy of religion, introduction to philosophy, applied ethics, world religions, and Western religious traditions and religion in America. Uh, on a personal note, I had the privilege of studying with him uh, at ASU West some years back as well. So pleased to introduce uh, Dr. Owen Anderson. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I'm not sure if you clap when someone's on Zoom or not. I'm glad to be here, though, and I apologize for not being in person. I had an injury to my eye, and... I uh, kept me from being able to get down there, and I hoped I could still make my talk, and they were able to accommodate me by, by putting me on Zoom. But I'm guessing I'm kind of like a giant face talking to you. And it reminds me of 1984, right? And you're going to be told now about art and philosophy by the giant talking guy on the video. Um, but I'm hoping we can have some questions and keep it interactive. Some of the technology lets us still still do that. Now, the title of the talk is The Artist and the Philosopher. And for someone who is not in academics, if they hear that title, they might assume those are basically the same thing, uh, artist and philosopher, useless academics. Someone in the academy might immediately think about perhaps Plato and think, well, the artist and the philosopher, those are enemies. So what I want to talk about is really the purpose of art and how philosophy engages with art. And I, I especially was looking at books as I prepared for my talk by Roger Scruton. And I'm going to look at some of how he defines beauty. I want to start with a quote. I do have a paper I'm going to be going through and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll have some of it up on the screen while we're going, but I don't want to just have you read through a paper. The whole point is having me there so you don't have to do that. Oh, wow. Actually, Stephen, they don't let me um, share my screen either since I'm not the host. I will red alert that digit key code right now. Okay. Yeah, no problem. All right. So uh, let me read you the quote. So Roger Scruton in his book, Beauty, says, in my view, after having gone through some definitions of, of beauty and, and showing how they come short, in my view, all such definitions start from the wrong end of the subject which is not about things in the world, but about a particular experience of them and about the pursuit of meaning that springs from that experience. And that's really where I'm going to connect the artist and the philosopher is in that pursuit of meaning, whether it's in the experience of art and trying to understand that experience or in the philosopher reflecting on and contemplating the nature of reality. So I'm going to begin by considering commercials. And I can hear you say, but Dr. Anderson, no one thinks commercials are beautiful or artistic. And I'm not considering them for that reason. I'm thinking about commercials because of what they represent about a culture. The people who produce these have a great amount of money and they spend that money on learning about their audience and how to get their audience to do something. And this means that they're an excellent resource for studying the audience. They're asking the question, what will, or answering the question, what will move an audience to action, which is usually something like spending money. And since, as you pointed out, this isn't beauty, it must be something else. So we're conceding that beauty does not move the general audience. Because if beauty moved people to action, those who make commercials would be more worried about their commercials being beautiful. If anything, commercials today tend toward absurdity and nonsense. And yet there is an educational philosophy that says if you just put truth, beauty, and goodness in front of a person, they'll see their value and choose them. They'll be drawn toward them or moved toward them. 
But those two propositions can't both be true. It can't both be true that one, beauty isn't all that important for getting an audience to do something, and two, if we just saw beauty, we'd be moved to action. And it seems like the second one is the incorrect one. If it's true that simply putting beauty in front of people would move them, then Madison Avenue would do just that. So this is a paper about why that isn't the case, the philosopher and the artist. And I'll use two artists to illustrate the point that I'm going to make in this uh, presentation. They are Keats and King David. I believe that they both had access to the same information. Keats maybe had access to more, more history than David did, but they both studied general revelation. And I'm not thinking of David as set-apart, inspired author. I'm thinking of him as a poet who considered the works of God and wrote about his own struggles throughout life. Uh, he, he may have also been inspired to write Holy Scripture, but that's neither here nor there for the purpose of the comparison. So before we get to those two, I'm going to take a moment to think about two of the favorite intellectuals of the 20th century who thought about art and beauty. These are C.S. Lewis and Roger Scruton. As you read them, you can, you can see they come from the same stream of thought, even if Lewis is better known for his Christian apologetics. We know from his work on criticism that Lewis believed art is objective. It's not to be used simply for promoting an ideology. And he saw beauty as something incarnational in every, everyday life. Our nature is such that we find ourselves with desires meant to be met, such as hunger and thirst. And so the desire for beauty is no different, he thought. In that way, beauty is a kind of signpost along the way to beauty in itself. Now, for, for this presentation, I'm going to call this the PPA, the Platonic Perspective on Art. And it says that while the material world does contain beauty, it's limited and changing beauty that points us to the non-material world of the forms, beauty in itself. And in that realm, our deepest desires are finally met as we leave this world to, as Lewis liked to say, go higher up and further in. In his apologetic work, The Abolition of Man, and elsewhere, Lewis takes aim at the materialists and the reductionist education. He thinks of them as describing the experience of the sublime, when seeing a powerful waterfall, and reducing it to brain chemistry, the brain chemistry of the individual. So to argue against that view, he uses the term Tao. He says, this conception, in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to for brevity simply as the Tao. Some of the accounts I have quoted will seem, perhaps to many of you, merely quaint or even magical. But what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are true and others false to the kind of thing the universe is and the kinds of things we are. So the idea is that besides the materialist, all the other systems, and he names Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, Oriental, all those systems have had something akin to this Tao that is an objective way of measuring the world. And a good education is one that prepares students not just uh, with beliefs and actions, but with the proper emotional training to recognize this Tao and have the correct aesthetic and emotional responses to events in their lives. The educated person does not have this emotional training, or if the educated person does not have that emotional training, he is what Lewis calls a man without a chest, men without chests. They are heads and appendages, but no heart. So the purpose of education is to give us this heart. And doing this will be a great cure for education in the 20th century. He says, Without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. I'd sooner play cards against a man who is quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman does not cheat, than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up among sharpers. In battle, it is not syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. So you can see a kind of anti-intellectualism there. Reason or the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. And so for this paper, I'm going to call that the Platonic Perspective on Education. So now we have the Platonic Perspective on Art, PPA, and the Platonic Perspective on Education. So what does this have to do with our topic? 
Well, the men without chests don't recognize beauty. It doesn't factor into utilitarian reasoning or pragmatism. You can think of the villains in Lewis's fiction, and they're, they're all these types, utilitarian pragmatists who are willing to do what it takes to bring about their vision of a world. And it's usually a vision which does turn out to be very ugly. He describes uh, his, uh, the persons he's arguing against in the abolition of man this way. The operation of the Green Book and its kind is to produce what we may call men without chests. It is an outrage they should be commonly spoken of as intellectuals. This gives them the chance to say that he who attacks them attacks intelligence, and it's not so. They are not distinguished from other men by any unusual skill in finding truth or any virginal ardor to pursue her. Indeed, it would be strange if they were. A persevering devotion to truth, a nice sense of intellectual honor, cannot be long, be long maintained without the aid of a, of a sentiment, which Gaius and Titius, the two authors of this book, this, this book he's made up, but, but it represents a real book, would debunk as easily as the other. It is not excessive thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. Their heads are no bigger than the ordinary. It is the atrophy of the chest beneath them that makes them seem so. So interesting, right? What he's saying here, keeping with the uh, anti-intellectual quote I had a moment ago, it isn't that the materialists aren't thinking correctly, which seems to imply that perhaps materialism is true. It's that they don't have the right sentiments, because another thing to, to do would be to say, look, the materialists haven't thought through materialism very well. Materialism is, it is a pretty simple philosophy to, to refute. And in that case, it would be an intellectual problem, not a sentimental problem. So to combat Gaius and Titius, we don't need to show that materialism is false and beauty cannot be reduced to brain chemistry, which again, I don't think is very hard to, to prove. Uh, or if he does offer an argument, about that is in an indirect way of showing that the appeal of emotions cannot be reduced away to atoms. It's as if Lewis grants that they've used reason correctly, or that reason is ineffectual to show, uh, their, the uh, intellect is ineffectual to show errors of reason, and we must instead train up the heart on the presuppositions of the Platonic perspective on education. He takes his view of beauty to be self-evident, and then he wants it worked into the students rather than engaging Gaius and Titius by reason. And we see this in how his heroes work out their conflicts with the villains in his fictional stories. So Lewis's use of the Tao is an excellent example of the problem. The world systems that he lists don't do what he says they do. They don't all agree there's an objective world by which right and wrong could be judged. Taoism, from which he takes the term, is a good example because Taoism is a monist religion that teaches all is one. Its most famous symbol, the yin-yang, teaches that good, and e good is evil and evil is good, that light is dark, dark is light, and both of them are commingled into one, and each has a spot of the other in one. So we really can't use the Tao to prove what he wants, which is that there's an objective world. We can go on with other examples from the list he gave but this, per, this platonic perspective of art, given this per, platonic perspective of art, it makes sense that these matters of belief and reason are not what is important to a thinker like Lewis, but rather that each world system believes a student should be trained to have the proper emotional response. And yet that doesn't seem to be correct about all the systems he named. So what is beauty? How would we train a student to recognize beauty? How would we... Uh, get them to have the proper response to an, to an object of art if we don't even know what beauty is ourselves. If we're to trust experts, isn't it just to concede that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? It requires an expert. And experts have sharply disagreed with each other even on how to define beauty. So Roger Scruton can help us here with his definition of, with a definition of art and beauty. Much of what is called classical art is platonic in the sense that it's meant to either depart this world or point us toward transcendent forms, the idealized human body and the scenes that draw our attention away from this world are good examples of that kind of art. So we still need a definition of beauty, and Scruton considers a few, such as that it is that it has to do with order and balance, everything having a place. But each of those definitions comes short of a full definition, he says, and leaves us with something like, 
you'll know it when you see it. But that brings us back to the problem that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One way to answer that objection is to try to define beauty and art in terms of their purposes. But as Scruton points out, this reduces art to a utilitarian consideration and makes it just a means to some other end. He says, There is an appealing idea about beauty which goes back to Plato and Plotinus and which became incorporated by various routes into Christian theological thinking. According to this idea, beauty is an ultimate value something that we pursue for its own sake and the pursuit of which has no further reason needed. Beauty should therefore be compared to truth and goodness, one member of a trio of ultimate values which justify our rational inclinations. So if you're asked why believe P, and you're given the answer because it's true, that's enough. Or why want A, and the answer is because it's good, you don't need another answer. That's right. Or I say why look at Y, and the answer is because it's beautiful, that's sufficient. So in some way, philosophers have argued those answers are on a par. Each brings a state of mind within the orbit of reason by connecting to something that is in our nature as rational beings to pursue. Someone who asked why believe what is true or why want what is good has failed to understand the nature of reasoning. He doesn't see that if we are to justify our beliefs and desires at all, then our reasons must be anchored in the true and the good. So see how just in this quote, Scruton has already departed from and corrected Lewis by saying that understanding beauty is part of our rational nature. That's precisely why we can understand beauty and art. It's a matter of our intellect and using reason to understand part of reality. So Scruton rejects the platonic claim that beauty is a feature of being itself. But perhaps the more critical part of the platonic definition is that of transcendence. He cites Aquinas as having this same view and even saying that truth, beauty, and goodness are the same due to Aquinas's understanding of divine simplicity. He thinks they're all the same thing. The forms and being in itself can be beautiful while the world of change is only a shadow. We see that same teaching in Lewis. It's the idea of the transcendent that he believes unites the various world systems that he names. However, given that some of those are monist and they deny there is anything transcendental at all because they say all is one, so really all is imminent, not transcendent. So we can take from Scruton, the Scruton quote I just read, that these three categories, truth, beauty, and goodness, are ends in themselves. That means they're not defined in relation to some other end they help achieve. They're desired for their own sake. And we can appreciate this because we are rational beings. But notice that this narrows what is meant by the term rational. It becomes a kind of means-ends reasoning or practical rationality. A broader definition is that reason is the laws of thought by which we understand anything at all. By reason, we know that beauty is beauty, and beauty is not non-beauty. In order to make his point about reason and art, Scruton quotes from Kant. He says, We began with certain platitudes about beauty and moved towards a theory, that of Kant, which is far from platitudinous and indeed inherently controversial with its attempt to define aesthetic judgment and give it a central role in the life of a rational being. I don't say that Kant's theory is right, but it provides an interesting starting point to a subject that remains as controversial today as it did when Kant wrote his third critique. And one thing is surely right in Kant's argument, which is that the experience of beauty, like the judgment in which it issues, is the prerogative of rational beings. Only creatures like us, with language, self-consciousness, practical reason, and moral judgment can look on the world in this alert and disinterested way so as to seize on the present object and take pleasure in it, end quote. So Scruton and Kant are using reason in this very narrow way. We are rational when we are disinterested and can make judgments without acting merely out of self-interest. Since the classical age, it's been common to distinguish between practical and abstract reason, and Kant wrote critiques of both. 
Interestingly, Socrates denied this strong division and argued instead that one's understanding of the good shapes one's practical reasoning. So in the quote above, Scruton and Kant think of our rational nature, meaning something like language and self-consciousness, and then practical reason and moral judgments. And there's in this the idea of the disinterested observer. And I think in part that means that the observer is not claiming that an object is beautiful because he wants to make a potential sale, but because it is beautiful in itself. And then Scruton says, And like every rational judgment, this one makes implicit appeal to the community of rational beings. That's what Kant meant when he argued that, In the judgment of taste, I am a suitor for agreement expressing my judgment not as a private opinion, but as a binding verdict that would be agreed on by all rational beings so long as they did what I am doing and put their own interests aside. So you can see, again, the difference here between Scruton and Lewis, where Lewis is saying, really, reason and the intellect are powerless. Scruton is saying, no, art and beauty are precisely important to us because we're rational. They appeal to our rational side, and we try to find meaning in works of art, which is what distinguishes us from from non-humans who don't do that. So uh, Scruton expands his definition of reason in that quote I read at the beginning, where he says, in my view, all such definitions about beauty start from the wrong end of the subject, which is not about things in the world, but about a particular experience of them and about the pursuit of meaning that springs from that experience. So the need for meaning, the pursuit of meaning, is what is the uniquely human and it's the use of reason by which humans are pursuing meaning in any of their experiences, including the experience of beauty through art. That's very really a fundamental use of reason. That's the logically and psychologically basic sense, more basic than practical rationality. And really what's going on with Lewis's villains, whether it's uh, Gaius and Titius or it's his villains in his fiction, is that they're failing to use reason to understand the meaning in the world. It's not simply that they're utilitarians or they're pragmatists. And so Lewis is just not correct when he says that it isn't a matter of the intellect and that we just need to be trained in the right sentiments. The materialist or the atomist, the reductionist, says there is no meaning, but maybe at most just meanings related to practical ends. And that's false. And we should be able to show it's false. There must be something at which all these meanings and ends aim. And in that sense, we can call reason itself transcendental. It is that by which we understand, by which we find meaning. It's the final authority. We use reason to distinguish art from non-art, even if we have a hard time defining it. Even meaning can have, or we should notice that meaning can have two meanings. Meaning can mean the purpose of a thing. So the meaning of life is the purpose of life, such as someone might say being happy. Or meaning could mean intelligible able to be understood, coherent. And those two meanings are tied together. If life is unintelligible, cannot be understood, it's incoherent, then it has no purpose. And really, that is what is intolerable for any human. When they come, down, when they come to a point and they realize, my life is unintelligible, there's nothing worse. They look for that order to make sense of their life. And that'd be the same in art. When we look at a piece of art, a work of art, and we say, this doesn't have any meaning. That's what we're looking for. And that's really where the artist and the philosopher overlap in their pursuit of meaning, even if they take different means to get there. So we can, we can apply these considerations to beauty. We're rational in the sense that we can understand. We can use reason to distinguish beauty from not beauty. In this sense, Beauty appeals to our rational nature, as Scruton has told us. We can distinguish and argue about beauty. And however we distinguish, we have this intuition of beauty, an immediate perception of beauty, and we also have our understanding of beauty. So Scruton says, beauty, I argue, is a real and universal value, one anchored in our rational nature. And the sense of beauty has an indispensable part to play in shaping the human world. My approach, he says, is philosophical, and the principal sources for my arguments are the works of philosophers. So he's, he's approaching art as a philosopher, but he's affirming that there really is something called beauty that art points us to, or is. 
But Lewis didn't get us here because of the direction he takes with the heart. We could call him a non-cognitivist in his approach to reality, that is, approaching it from the, from the sense of sentiments. And this is why he appeals to those who attempt to find truth through myth. Scruton describes it this way, From Kierkegaard to Wilde, the aesthetic way of life, in which beauty is pursued as a supreme value, has been opposed to the life of virtue, the love of myths, stories, and rituals, the need for consolation and harmony, the deep desire for order. All have drawn people to religious beliefs, regardless of whether those beliefs are true. So both Lewis and Scruton are concerned about the mere utilitarian rationality, but Scruton doesn't identify this with the head. He instead sees it as a departure from reason. He says, art, as we have known it, stands on the threshold of the transcendental. It points beyond this world of accidental and disconnected things to another realm in which human life is endowed with an emotional logic that makes suffering noble and love worthwhile. Nobody who is alert to beauty, therefore, is without the concept of redemption, of a final transcendence of mortal disorder into a kingdom of ends. In an age of declining faith, art bears enduring witness to the spiritual hunger and immortal longings of our species. Hence, aesthetic education matters more today than in any previous period in history. Now, that is what I've been calling the platonic perspective on art. It's pointing us to something beyond this world. And by redemption here, he means taken out of this world of change into the world of order and ends. So the modern artist, who may wish to depart from the platonic perspective of art and the conceptions of beauty, will often focus on the disorder in this world, which is really just one half of the platonic perspective of art, because it, it concedes this world is disordered. And modern art, you'll often find, just focuses on that, the ugliness in the world, while denying that there is another world at all. And so you can hear Lewis pointing to the Tao as the summary of the classical view, even if he got Taoism wrong. The materialist reductionists have only this world. For Scruton, virtue and suffering are said to make sense because they guide us to this other world. I'll call that Greek dualism. It teaches that there are two worlds, and we could summarize them as the material world and the spirit world. And the material world is always partial, changing, imperfect, limited. And these are the causes of evil and suffering. Whereas the world of spirit, or the forms, is perfect. The demiurge, who formed this world, tried to make matter imitate the forms, but due to matter's inherent flaws, was only able to do so much. Now that takes Gnostic forms when you're told there are secret teachings about how human, the human soul can climb the ladder of being and become a god, but it doesn't always take that form. So are we caught between this classical platonic view and the utilitarian reductionist view, or is this a false antinomy? Is the platonic perspective on art really the best definition of beauty? I'll now argue that this is a false antinomy, and the platonic perspective of education is not the best way to understand art education. It relies on the philosophical assumptions of Greek dualism, which, if false, render it also false. So to make this case, I will now contrast two artists, Keats, who fits into the platonic perspective of art, and King David, who gives us a third option, and in doing that defines beauty. So we'll look at Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn and David's Psalm 27, 27. I have them at the end of my paper for reference, and if I could share the screen, I would do that, but I don't think I'm able to do that. Now we find Keats. Did you get that code? No, I tried, okay. I tried to explore that instead of All right. We find Keats reflecting on the meaning of a Grecian urn, which takes him back to ancient Greece. He reflects on Grecian landscapes, but more pointedly on Grecian religion. And there he sees uh, a priest leading a sacrifice to the altar. He thinks of gods and mortals. All of this recalls a real history, but also an idealized history, and it's now gone. 
as the world of the forms, the world of the past is not here, but elsewhere. And the world of the past in this kind of remembrance takes on a kind of uh, idealized form. So following his mind to the past also takes him to the ideas or the forms. Beauty is there because it's unchangeable. Now, Scruton spoke of the transcendence of art. It points us beyond this world. And Lewis did the same. But this view of transcendence does not adequately deal with art developed in monist systems that deny there is any transcendence by teaching all as one. And Scruton and Lewis instead are assuming what I've called Greek dualism. This represents a family of beliefs including Gnosticism and Platonism. And its basic beliefs are that this world of change and suffering is not real. The real world is the world of spirit or forms. And this remains, this world of spirit or forms remains when the world around us decays and dies. So art is supposed to capture that, direct us to that other world. The world around us is only as only real insofar as it mimics the forms. And on this basis, Plato tells us that beauty, or Keats rather, tells us that beauty is truth, and truth beauty. Now the order of those two is relevant. Beauty here is the intuition. It came first. Intuitions are immediate. They're not inferred. Whereas truth is made by inference. You arrive at a true conclusion by inference. So truth is mediated through premises. But really, Keats is denying that we ever need to do that. Beauty is truth. Just that immediate intuition is our truth. But to equate those is like saying A is non-A. The immediate is what is not immediate. But that's what the poem asks us to do. Really, the poem asks us to go beyond reason and truth to the world, the intuitive world of the forms. And in the Platonic perspective of education, education prepares us for that direct perception of the forms in the next life. This highest perception is intuitive, not inferential. We see the forms. In fact, according to Plato, we have already seen the forms in a previous life. All knowledge is memory. And hence, think about Keats here, remembering. All knowledge is memory of having seen the forms. And you can understand how his argument works. Knowledge is perception of the forms, and we don't do that in this life. Yet we do know things in this life. Therefore, we must have gotten that knowledge in a previous life. So Keats is great because he captures the longing for this ideal. In contrast to the time of Plato, where Plato could write in the present about Greek religion, Keats is thinking back on a lost ideal. But that all the more captures the Platonic perspective on art and Greek dualism. The intuition of beauty is the end of life on earth, the, the end in the sense of the goal. But it's just a romanticized fiction. As the world of decay, this world has no meaning. And any suffering or virtue here is only to prepare us for the next world. Beauty here, imperfect, points us to there. In rejecting this otherworldliness, modern art has only the ugliness of this world. But, it's, but is that really the only alternative to the Platonic perspective on art, the ugliness of this world put in a frame and called art? Or the ideological activism that so often finds its way into art galleries and universities? Well, I believe that David gives us a third alternative. And one might think, isn't that just what Lewis was expressing as a Christian? No, because I think Lewis, although a Christian, was caught up in Platonism and giving us the Platonic perspective of art. So when you read Lewis, it's a work, uh, it's an effort to distinguish what is Christian and what is Plato. What David does, it shows us this. The beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness, which you don't find in Plato. You don't even find in Scruton. You don't find in Keats. Where the Greek categories were truth, beauty, and goodness, David's categories are knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. The latter are a fuller description of the human condition. We want knowledge or understanding, not merely just true propositions. We want holiness, not merely apparently beautiful. And we want righteousness, not otherworldly virtue. And those are expressed in normative terms, as humans ought to seek they ought to understand. They ought to do what is right. There with those three, seek, understand, do what is right. The order is, 
is, be- is holiness, understanding, righteousness. And as sin is defined as not seeking, not understanding, not doing what is right. So in Psalm 27, we find David saying, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And then he says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So here in Plato, there is no otherworldly longing or platonic transcendence. David's desire is not an otherworldly beatific vision. He looks to see the face of God in the sense of understanding God directly and not just through signs and symbols to understand the glory of God in this life. He tells us how this is done in other Psalms like Psalm 19, Psalm 104, Psalm 145. The works of God display the glory of God. We know God through his works, not immediately through a beatific vision as in Plato. And this includes the works both of creation and of redemption. So you can contrast the temple David mentions with the temple that Keats found in Greece, where they were offering a sacrifice. The temple for David, or tabernacle, was the place of daily sacrifices and the Day of Atonement. It taught by that sacrifice the need for vicarious atonement. Through the death of another, there's forgiveness. It taught of human sin and God's justice and mercy. So that's the sense of redemption David is searching for. It's not what Roger Scruton meant when he meant when he spoke of redemption by going to the next life. Redemption is from sin, the sin of not seeking God, not understanding, not doing what is right. One is redeemed from not knowing the glory of God to knowing the glory of God displayed in all of his works. And perhaps the greatest expression of that kind of repentance from sin is, is David's Psalm 51. The many pagan temples in Greece were akin to the Gnostic teaching and relied on Greek dualism. There we find the many gods who were awful persons, let alone gods, and they were worshipped in the way one would placate a demon. The great Jupiter Olympus, known for his many sins and lusts. And there's no redemption there because there's no God the creator there. There's only the feeble hope of a better afterlife if one does it right in this life. This is a very emaciated view of human life when put next to what David expresses. So that's why transcendence is not enough. The Platonic can give us transcendence. It's not enough in art, philosophy, or religion. For one thing, the monistic religions that Lewis cites don't believe in transcendence. So you'd have to prove there is anything transcendent. And that's not merely against the materialist. It would be in contrast to Hinduism or Buddhism or Taoism. But there are plenty... Uh, that, that do believe in transcendence, but they reject the holiness of God. Therefore, while they may call transcendence beautiful, they're not grounding that in the truth about God. Remember the connection between truth, reality, and beauty, as Scruton mentioned. Our beliefs about what is transcendent matters, not merely enough to say, I believe in something transcendent. Unbelief about what is transcendent or imminent is a problem. So we find in Psalms 29 and 96 that phrase, the beauty of holiness by David. It's worth noting that that concept wasn't in Plato or Lewis or Scruton. Holiness as beauty. To be holy is to be free from sin, to love what is good perfectly, and in doing that, to be set apart from the world of sin. So the contrast is not this world and the next world. It's this world without sin and this world with sin. Two kingdoms in the same world. Beauty is in holiness. And it's in this perfection, this, this is the perfection that Keats longs for but can't express. So he has this idealized version of the past. It's not the removed beauty of Plato's beatific vision. It's the beauty known by all the works of God. And that means we can know it now. As David said, I'll know the goodness of God in the land of the living, not just in some afterlife. It's a vision of beauty that finds God made known in all of his works, not an otherworldly vision or the merely thisworldly vision of the utilitarians. 
So what is beauty? While the various definitions Scruton considered all seem lacking, I believe they lacked the beauty of holiness. The holiness of God is beautiful or, or is sublime. His is the perfect, perfect commitment to all that is good, the perfect rule and wisdom over all details, the perfect perfection of justice and always upholding the truth that the day you eat, you'll surely die, the perfection of love and redeeming the lost. So there's a unity to the definition of art and beauty when we understand what holiness is and how holiness grounds what we want out of beauty, which can explain why we could say something is beautiful and ugly at the same time. It has the appearance of order, but it's corrupt. Now, we can speak about our old Edenic nature. It's what's left after the fall that intuitively recognizes truth, beauty, and goodness. Because God created us in a specific way, we recognize and long for those. So some use that as a kind of proof for God's existence, but that would be circular. Once we've shown that God exists, we can know how God created us with this longing for truth, beauty, and goodness. But because of sin, that ideal, say Eden, is kept from us. And that's where the, the Platonic perspective on art fails to recognize, and therefore, therefore where the Platonic perspective on education comes short. But David gives us this robust understanding of sin and our need for redemption in Psalm 51. What calls out to us as a person in the beautiful tells us about ourselves. It tells us what we think is holy. It tells us how we understand our need for redemption and re repentance. Beauty displays reality to us, and therefore we'll miss what is truly beautiful if we don't know what is real. Thus we can understand what a person thinks about reality by observing their response to beauty. And our education must be one that trains the mind to discern between real and unreal, or beautiful and ugly, or good and evil. David calls us to the beauty of holiness. Holiness is the center of any definition of beauty. Whatever other parts of the definition we take from Scruton's analysis, it is holiness that unites them into one coherent whole. And it's holiness that, that humans desire. The turn from beauty in modernity is partly due to the absence of holiness in the world. So there is a preparation needed to see holiness. And I began by talking about commercials and why Madison Avenue doesn't just put down beauty in front of its audience to get its audience to do what it wants. Well, because its audience doesn't know what is real. And so it's not able to appreciate the beauty of holiness. And in some level, Madison Avenue knows that, and so they have to figure out what will move their audience. But what will prepare our students then? Remember, there was a veil over the face of Moses, or a veil at the temple, that indicated you need to be prepared to see God. The reality of sin in each person means not only that they do not see God's holiness, but they're not even prepared to do so. So just as the Platonic perspective of education speaks of the need to prepare a student to appreciate art, so too David teaches us about the need for that type of preparation. But it's the preparation through knowing what is real and the truth about our own condition that will allow us to understand holiness. So if Lewis is right in his criticism of the materialists, he fails to point us to the beauty of holiness. And Scruton made a passing comment in, in that book, beauty, that God is beautiful, but he never develops it. And you can assume that he's speaking in a platonic sense. And in contrast to both of those, David points us to the beauty of God's holiness revealed in his works of creation and redemption. Keats may speak about secret priests offering cattle as sacrifices to the demonic Greek deities, but David points us to the truths of redemption signified in the very structure of the temple at Jerusalem. And this is the truth about the beauty of holiness. That's the end of my paper. Now we have half an hour for questions. Yeah, I can hear you.
Stephen, can you repeat the question? It's a little bit echoey. Yeah. Uh, can you elaborate more, expand upon the idea that we need to unveil our students' uh, faces to see beauty? How do we do that? Yeah. Well, in this case, the veil was put up to prevent the students, so to speak, from, from uh, disrespectfully, irreverently approaching God. Um, so the questions, the, 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 two, the two antinomies that Lewis gave us, either Platonism or pragmatism, do we offer our students other options? That would be just the first question. Do we even recognize there's another option? And then do we help them wrestle through questions about what is real? Just like art speaks to part of our rational nature, our rational nature wants to find meaning in the world. And so how do we help our students wrestle with that question? For example, is God real? There are other Psalms, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, where David wrestles with that problem. Those who say there is no God. So that seems to be a great question. I know that in uh, many schools, they cover Augustine's confessions, and he wrestles with that question throughout his youth. How do we know God is real at all? And is God this demiurge who lives in the world of the forms and we go in the afterlife to look at him? Or can we see the goodness of God in the land of the living, as David said? So I would say that's the first one, just merely even allowing our students to wrestle with those questions. I'm not sure they're aware of the difference. A lot of times I find in philosophy, people will say, well, Plato and Aristotle believed in God. And so the word God becomes this really generic term that covers a whole bunch of competing views so minimally, what I like to do for my students is just alert them to how many different definitions there are of the word God. And the, uh, the, uh, whether it's just the Old Testament or the New and Old Testament definition of God isn't what Plato or Aristotle believed in. Yeah, that's good. I can hear you pretty well, Stephen. I can't hear people in the back, though. Hey, thank you for that. That's fantastic. Uh, can you see us? I can see all of you, which is nice. I was afraid I'd be staring at myself the whole time. Oh, yeah. I hate it that. Um, so here's a question. And I, wish, I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about the connection between beauty and holiness. And my apologi apologies if you covered it already. Um, but maybe while I was writing notes and questions, I missed it. So I, I'm just, I'd like to hear more about um, how integral holiness is to beauty. Mm -hmm. And, and here's, here's a couple of examples, I guess, and, and maybe just explain to me why this isn't the case. So if I take, for example, you know, let's say a box cello suite, uh, a well-executed hand-thrown pottery mug, and a painting, you know, by uh, Take Your Pick, you know, Mark Chagall. Why do any of those have to be holy in order to be beautiful? Or yeah. are they, or is it simply that to be beautiful, they have to be not somehow, you know, unholy? But could you just, just mm -hmm. uh, unpack that for me? Because it does sound like those objects don't have a kind of independent yeah. um, existence to themselves apart from, if you will, you know, God the creator or something mm -hmm. like that. So, Yep, good question. Say a little bit more about that. Awesome, thanks. And I think that, but that would be, that same problem would be true for the Platonic view, right? They don't have beauty apart from participation in the form of beauty. So anything that, well, there's Platonic view or what I'm calling the David view uh, that says there's something else that's beautiful by, to which we compare something would have that same issue, right? Now, I think you said uh, something by Bach, a mug, and a painting, like a well-crafted mug. Yeah, so, so uh, skillfulness is a prerequisite for, for art, but isn't the same as art. So you could be skillful and produce kitsch, what turns out to be junk, but is well-made junk. So that's only a prerequisite for making art. So I won't be able to do any of those things that you mentioned because I don't have skillfulness uh, in order to even enter the realm of art. So what takes it from a skillfully made whatever to a piece of art is a great question. That's what Roger Scruton was wrestling with. And he, he threw out a few, a few instances. Um, 
beauty, though, seems to be what takes into the realm of art. So then you have the Platonic definition, which says you're, you're, you're saying this is beautiful because it participates in some form. And I'm suggesting the, the third option that we found in the Psalms is holiness. Now, I'm not sure if people, how much holiness is on people's radar when they think about beauty. If you see a well, you, you, hear, a, you hear a concert or you see a well-made painting, holiness doesn't come to mind. But the idea of purity, maybe that's a better word. Does purity and beauty go together? Could you have adulterated beauty? Is, uh, when, I, when I was talking to my class last week, I was giving them a preview of this talk and I mentioned beauty. A couple of my students winced. And why did you wince? Well, beauty is such a painful and harmful construct, they said. And so I teased out a little bit, what are you talking about? And I realized what they meant was the kind of external beauty imposed on some women by media. And that's what they thought I meant by beauty. But their response helped a lot because what it showed was there's the appearance and there's the reality. And holiness is the reality. So when you see the appearance of beauty, but you find out about the lack of holiness, the appearance is almost misplaced. It almost makes it worse. It'd be preferred to have some connection between lack of holiness and ugliness. But when you try to cover up lack of holiness with beauty, the beauty is not only lost, it it's, uh, becomes ironic at best. So I don't think those things you mentioned, especially the, uh, say, Bach or a, a painting, uh, as works of art, would last unless they were connected up to that purity. And we know for sure that Bach understood exactly that point because of what he wrote on every one of his, his works of music, right? To the glory of God. So imagine uh, you have a, something similar, some piece of art, and the author writes like, uh, to the glory of Stalin or something. Uh, still the same piece of art. Nothing changed about the art. But that materialist twist on it deprives of any real or lasting value. And I'm arguing that the Platonic view does too. It deprives this world of value. So the object, the idea of a, uh, Scruton in his book on beauty has a whole chapter on ordinary daily life beauty. Beauty is not just high art. It's also found in daily life. But I think you could only do that if you have the imminence of, of uh, God's glory in the world. The Platonic couldn't have beauty in this life. Does that answer your question? Okay. We got 20 minutes though, too, so we'll see if anyone else has a question, but then we can make sure we use up our time well. Hey, as the moderator, actually, do you have a question? Good. This kind of building off what you just said. So, when you talk about the Platonic versus, you know, the Davidic, the biblical worldview, and uh, you mentioned some arts might kind of point towards the transcendent while neglecting. Uh, you know, the present world. I'm wondering, do you think there would be different artifacts coming out of like a platonic world? Mm -hmm. Like the Renaissance, for example, often we praise that as being yeah. like the pinnacle, but that, that often came more out of that Greek and Roman worldview. So do you see the artifacts being different? Or oh, do you yeah. see it more like how we interpret our experience of the artifacts? Oh yeah, I do. And that's, absolutely, right? So you'll see that I mentioned the idealized human or landscape of the platonic view of art, right? And a lot, in, in many ways, we would reject that idealized human body of the platonic view, even though we, we still rely heavily on it in, in commercials. But the idea that that's what art does, it shows us the idealized, which is one reason why I like the Keats poem for our purposes, because even though he is directing us to that Greek ideal, the fact that it is now in ruins and decay shows that it wasn't all that good. So he captures that where, where he, when you see when you see the just the perfect marble statue, and you say, "Yeah, that's that's Jupiter. Look at him; he's perfect." Uh, or you see the the statue of Jupiter in decay. It's a different response, right, to it. So both of those, I guess, uh, yes, they'll produce different artifacts, and uh, at, the way we reflect on them will be different.
I think about the, the, uh, I was actually interacting with, with, I don't know if, if you have heard of Tony Eslin. He's a, he's a well-known, uh, scholar. And I was talking to him the other day and he was, he told me something. I'm assuming this is true because he's a well-known language scholar. The word alone didn't occur in English or Italian in the medieval ages. That's a modern concept. The idea of being alone. And I think not just alone from other humans, but alone existentially. You're alone in the universe. It didn't occur to the medieval person is what he was saying because of their just pre- preconceived idea that God is, God is real. Uh, and so modern art is wrestling with that concept in a way that the Platonic really never could. I'm still thinking about this question about how to prepare our students. Oh yeah, go ahead. Hi, um, I have a question that um, maybe is more at like the elementary education level. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about how, how, what is the relationship between beauty and preference? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically like Monet, most of his works look very similar, mm-hmm. um, but I think some are more beautiful than others. And I think Salvador Dali is not beautiful at all, but some people do. And so I'm just like, um, what I know that people say that art is or beauty is yeah. not in the eye of the beholder, yeah. but um, most people think it is, and so I'm just curious about like how all of that sort of fits together. How could you say Dolly is not beautiful because and yeah. Monet is beautiful because and these Monets are not beautiful, but I prefer those ones mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. No, that's really good. That, that's really the idea of preference is really why I started off with commercials, and towards the end, I said this that uh. What a person finds beautiful in one way tells us more about them than about the thing they're commenting on. And that's why Madison Avenue is helpful to say, yeah, people don't care much about truth, beauty, or goodness, or else Madison Avenue would pay for those things. So preferences like that, right? If, if, you, if you were to, someone was to say, I prefer this or that, well, that's, a, that's one good way to get to know them. But I guess uh, you, you can ask the follow-up question, like, what, what's beautiful about that? Or what isn't beautiful about Dali? Dali is the one, he did the one with the, um, with the uh, droopy clocks, right? What's that one called? Persistence of memory. Yeah. And uh, I like that one because have you ever experienced time like that? I have. And... So beautiful, is it beautiful like a Monet is beautiful? No. But remember, I, this is why I think Scruton's right. Art is getting us to the meaning of reality. So maybe the word beauty is, is used in one level where it would apply to Monet and not to Dolly. But in another way, art isn't simply about that sense of beauty. It's about our need for meaning. And the art of Dali can communicate that as well, maybe more than Monet. I actually like 20th century existentialist literature compared to medieval literature. Am I in trouble in this room? Uh, Because I think it wrestles with real problems and gets us to a deeper sense of reality by doing that. I think that there should have been an extra, an extra level in Dante called Kafka's bureaucracy, right? And I really, I, I enjoy reading Kafka in one quote unquote in the sense that, uh, man, he puts before you an existential crisis that is a real thing that you need to wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good example because it would it would be contrary to to the uh, platonic idea of beauty and it captures more the imminence of beauty. I had a summer uh, research fellowship one one year at the uh University of Hawaii East West Center. And one of the things we spent time studying was Taoist paintings. And I love studying these. So that's not that's not Japanese, but it's connecting up in my mind the way the Taoist paintings 
took you through from the ordinary to the mystical in their landscapes. And the ordinary life did portray, right? The normal, the ugly, just real life. Um, And so I think that is something that seems more authentic or real than Renaissance work, which is one of the reasons why there's a turn from Renaissance work. The idealized is really a comment on the, the lack of meaning in this life. And what I appreciate about David is he doesn't let us get away with that. I will see the Lord in the land of the living, something that Job, Job also says in the midst of his suffering. So Job doesn't say, at least I'll die and have a beatific vision. Job says, no, I'll see the Lord God in the land of the living. That's my hope. So how's that an answer about Japanese? Sorry. It was an emphasis on, yeah, the platonic ideal versus the imminent. And I think that's one of the contributions of that kind of art is reminding us of the imminent. So a comment again on the, the modern art, it was a debate that I had with a teacher that I came here with, and uh, we're both art teachers and teach art history, and um, she commented saying, you know, I hate teaching modern art at a classical school, Yeah. because to her, it doesn't seem like a, a very classical or yeah. doing well with that kind of stuff, and I argued that um, modern art is just a different approach, right? There's, it's mm-hmm. a different view of beauty and it's not necessarily always about beauty either, but it's about, you know, uh, a political stance or some kind of argument. And so like, how would you say is, is the best approach then to teach um, these concepts of truth, goodness and beauty yeah. when we're talking about modern art in a classical school? Yeah, that's a great question. Because really, one of my worries. Yeah, I, I'm using it loosely. And in my mind, it's like art coming after the industrial revolution, and really at, uh, be, before, right before, like um, you know, you've got the invention of the car and stuff. But also, it really takes a up. Uh, upturn in like 1917 after the Great War. So it's a time period. Futurism, all that kind of stuff. Yes. Just those more expressive pieces that aren't like inherently beautiful, just like looking straight at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, imagine uh, someone, you know, so so in other words, the answer to the question is, yeah, it's a certain time period rather than a movement within the time period, because there could be modernism as a specific movement. But yeah, imagine Monet versus the Sistine Chapel. Not versus like which one's better or more valuable, but in terms of what, the Sistine Chapel is so clear. And when you look at it in person, it looks three-dimensional. It's unbelievable, even though it's not three-dimensional. Monet is blurry. You can't see, you wonder, did I, where's my glasses? What's going on here? Was, was, did, he, did he need glasses? So just that's a comment on two perspectives. The ideal clearly seen and in the modern age as a time period, things aren't clear anymore. It's hard to see them. So just those kinds of uh, comments on the the difference of use of perspective in those arts. But what would you, I guess my answer to the question is, it, it kind of has an assumption, which is that we have to approach classical education as Platonists. And so then it's hard to make sense of these other things which don't fit into the mold of Platonic art. So maybe what the answer could be is, as a classical school, we really are rethinking Platonism also. We do have the values of truth, beauty, and goodness, but maybe Plato was wrong about those things and Platonic art was insufficient. And the reason why we have the early modern and modern world is because of the failures of the medieval world. So that art forms of the medieval world, just like the political structures and the religious institutions, had significant problems. And so when you find the 20th century man struggling with the emptiness of life, 
that's connecting you up to reality also, even if it seems ugly in some sense. And remember, that was the essence of Scruton's definition, the pursuit of meaning. If I could share my screen, I'd put contact information up, but I can't do that. So if you remember my name, yeah, Stephen has my ASU email. But if you look up on ASU, you look up my name, you'll see my email on there. A plug for what? Oh, the app? Yeah, I'm on the app also. There's an app for that. Good. Any final questions? Okay, it's on the website. And, okay, yeah, it's in the app on the website. They can contact me. So they can email you from there. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Sorry I couldn't be there in person.